A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, I'm Ryan Grimm, and welcome back to an encore edition of the crossover that so many of you have been demanding. Intercepted and Deconstructed are both in the house here with my colleague, Murtaza Hussein. Uh, Murtaza, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me on Intercepted. Great to be back. Always love another crossover. There you go. So to let, let's get people up to speed who might have missed the first one, uh, which was about the what is what is known in Pakistan as the cipher story. So what 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 is quick as quickly as we can? What's the cipher story? Sure. For the past year and a half, Pakistan has been talking about this secret document that uh, no one has seen, but. Uh, no one had seen until recently, but which showed allegedly, according to former Prime Minister Imran Khan, that the U.S. had privately pushed for his removal from power. And since Khan's removal last year, Pakistan's been embroiled in a huge political and economic and security uh, crisis, effectively. But no one had seen this document until we published it last month. And it did show that many of Khan's claims, or the substance of Khan's claims that U.S. diplomats from the State Department had encouraged his removal and even, you could say, threatened or incentivized the Pakistani military to make his removal to happen uh, was true. And it did actually shed some light on this issue, which in Pakistan is still ongoing and which still is really at the core of the crisis in that country of 200 million people, 200 million plus people, which is who controls the country, who should control it and who gets to make the calls behind the scenes. And really Khan's claims of how his own dismissal took place, had a lot more substance than his critics had said for a long time beforehand. Yeah, and, and the crux of the dispute, if you want to call it that, between the United States and Khan was Ukraine and was what they called Khan's quote-unquote aggressively neutral position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. And you know, we've kind of made fun of that, uh, that, claim, that, that, that phrasing, aggressively neutral, because it is kind of absurd. On the other hand, he was actually kind of aggressive about it. it you know, the, night, the day before meeting with Don Liu in this critical moment where, where Liu tells the ambassador that they basically want Khan gone, he was responding to kind of EU complaints about his neutrality by saying, we are not your slaves. So yeah, I, I, I understand what, what he, as absurd as the claim is, I understand what he means by aggressive neutrality. Yeah, Khan is a very famously bombastic, you can say populist figure uh, in, in politics. And he does not, you know, dress up his statements in the diplomatic niceties that someone may expect. He's quite blunt about it. And certainly they seem to provoke the United States or antagonize them. And the degree to which they were upset about it maybe wasn't clear in public statements, but behind the scenes, um, what State Department was saying, clearly they were quite, quite angry about Khan's position. And that's another thing that no one knew about the cipher, is that what exactly was the core and substance of the dispute? Turns out that it was, really was about Ukraine and Pakistan's stance on it, which while neutral was not that different from, say, India's stance or Bangladesh's stance on the conflict, uh, they're trying to take a non-aligned position in a conflict which really wasn't in their region. And that seemed to step on the prerogatives of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, particularly as it relates to the Pakistani military. And it, you also have to have a little bit more power uh, than Pakistan had in order to uh, hold that neutral position, it seems, which, you know, India and even some of the Gulf countries who are somewhat aligned with the United States took a non-aligned, have taken somewhat of a non-aligned position, but 
they can stand on their own two feet. And it seems like what the United States said here is you can't like we can we can push you over and we can we now have more context for what happened since then. So Khan is removed from power uh, in April of 2022. So at this point, the war is two months old. You're already starting to see uh, the Ukrainians running low on munitions because they were not expecting kind of a long drawn out war. The U.S. industrial base is also not uh, in a place where it can produce these low grade weapons at scale. We can produce a hundred million dollar F-35 that falls out of the sky and gets lost and builds around it an entire orbit of executives and lobbyists, but we don't make a lot of kind of bullets and artillery shells. And so for that, we needed Pakistan. And so talk a little bit about this, the new reporting um, that, that, and what we've uncovered about what, what Pakistan's role was uh, vis-a-vis this war after Khan was ousted. Well, you know, a very good point you made was that Pakistan was kind of vulnerable to this kind of external pressure from the United States because its economic situation is so dysfunctional. And one thing we've learned now is that the IMF bailout that Pakistan received earlier this year, and which is really banking on to extricate itself from this significant economic crisis which we're experiencing, was encouraged or it came to fruition with the great help of the United States for Pakistani cooperation and support in the war in Ukraine, provision of these weapons, sales of which uh, the capital generated thereof was used to facilitate the financing of this loan, and certainly also to curry the political favor necessary to get make the loan happen. So you have a situation where the U.S. has very great disproportionate influence in the IMF. Uh, Pakistan's dependent on the IMF for uh, financial support, uh, financing uh, loans, and so forth. And the U.S. can say, well, we implicitly or explicitly, we won't open the taps for your economic uh, well-being if you don't give us what we want politically in this sense. So we kind of see very, very great detail in the story how things really work behind the scenes, the deal-making that takes place at elite levels uh, beyond what is said publicly, which is much more anodyne and uh, sterile, you could say, or more diplomatic, you could say, in the public positioning. It was a really... Uh, a lot of horse trading taking place behind the scenes. And unfortunately, I think that the ugly part of this deal is that uh, there's a crackdown taking place in Pakistan right now. It's being led by the Pakistani military to dismantle Khan's party and suppress pretty much all dissent. And this loan has effectively helped finance that crackdown. It's uh, allowed them to postpone elections. It's allowed them to solidify their own hold on power, which should be temporary in anticipation of elections, but seems like it's much more long-lasting than that. And it's all going back to an arms deal. It's an arms deal for, you know, bombs for billions, you could say, that's uh, what's holding the current Pakistani regime in place. And and so to help us walk through and unpack this, uh, we're also joined by Araf Rafiq, uh, who is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Uh, a lot of his focus area is on Pakistan and South Asia. He's also a political risk analyst that, that focuses on that region. Araf, you know, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to be on with you guys. And so first of all, can can you tell the listeners a little bit what is a uh, what kind of consulting work is kind of political risk analysis? Ah, okay. So um, political risk analysis, you, I basically provide guidance to entities that have uh, investments uh, and other equities in Pakistan and in uh, neighboring states, and I help identify uh, both risks and opportunities that impact their actual investments, but 
you know, relate to uh, the political order in the country, stability, in the case of Pakistan, civil military relations. So how does politics affect their bottom line um, and, and their uh, involvement in that country? So that's, I basically alert them to uh, risks and opportunities uh, in the political domain that impact their economic investments. And so they're watching this extremely closely, and I would assume they have to be very clear-eyed about it because they have they have dollars or rupees. They have money on the line. Absolutely. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about the role of the IMF here? As somebody who was observing this unfold, you know, beginning in, in early 2022, you know, what was the role of the IMF here and what kind of what is what are the implications of, of what we've uncovered here? The IMF effectively serves as life support for the Pakistani economy. Uh, Pakistan is a, you know, a habitual patient of the IMF. So this is currently the 22nd or 23rd IMF program for Pakistan in, in its history. And so every, I would say, three to five years, the country enters some kind of new IMF program. And that's because the country goes through what are called boom-bust cycles. It grows at above average rates for a couple of years, then its economy heats up, and it begins to run out of money to finance its own budget, as well as uh, its external liabilities. So Pakistan is a net importer. It imports energy as well as some food items and other things to fuel its economy, as well as you know feed its people. And um, its export base is quite weak. And so uh, it constantly needs the influx of funds from the IMF, as well as IMF partners, to help enable it to finance its export imports, and then also um, address its uh, you know, budgetary needs. And so the IMF um, you know, routinely comes in, and Pakistan is a sort of a long-term, long-time patient of the IMF. And, and basically, the IMF plays the role of preventing Pakistan's economic collapse. It doesn't help the country in terms of its broader economic transformation and uh, developing an economy, an economy that meets the needs of its people, but it is there uh, to prevent an all-out collapse. And, you know, you described the situation of boom-bust cycle uh, in Pakistani politics. I believe there's something with Pakistan's political economy which contributes to that. And you mentioned civil military relations earlier. Uh, Pakistani military obviously has a very disproportionate share in Pakistan's economy itself. It's a big real estate holder. It controls other industries. How does this military control of the economy lead to this chronically dysfunctional economic uh, situation? Yeah, there is an imbalance in Pakistan's economy, and its economic policies are largely aimed at or disproportionately aimed at privileging the few in the country, and that includes its political and economic elites, as well as the military. Uh, the military is a major economic player in the country. It owns a significant amount of land uh, as commercial property. It also makes manufactures cornflakes, meat, and other goods. Um, and so it, it's very analogous to what we have in Egypt and other countries where the, um, the military is just a big player in the economy. So it receives these undue benefits uh, in terms of um, privileges, in terms of market access and things like that. And ultimately what that does is it creates a kind of a, a domestic economy where the rules of the game are serve to privilege the few. And then Pakistan's elite doesn't invest in you know, competing in, in in the broader global market. And that's why the military and other major economic actors can benefit from the sheer demand in a country with a population of 240 million. 
but that is not a pathway toward creating a you know sustained economic growth that can last over a decade or two as we've seen in countries like Bangladesh which was formerly part of Pakistan uh, India Vietnam in, and many of the Southeast Asian countries that have you know seen some of the world's fastest growing economies so uh, the rules of the game are aimed at privileging the few and that produces this imbalanced economy and then the IMF comes in and it's just this uh, very torturous um, exercise that repeats itself every few years. And so what we reported in this most recent article is that the weapons production began roughly in, in August by Pakistan for the United States for the benefit of the, of the Ukrainian military. And then by the spring of 2023, so that's this year, the IMF publicly tells Reuters and Bloomberg and other news outlets that claims made by Pakistan about its progress toward the, the next round of IMF financing are not quite accurate. You know, that Pakistan was saying, we're good, everything's on cruise control by, you know, it expires at the end of June 30th, but we should be good. Next round is coming in. IMF says not so much. You need, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, roughly six, $6 billion. Between, you need to come up with collateral from these other countries in order for us to put forward our financing. And all of a sudden, end of June, uh, the money uncorks. So we can add to this now through our reporting that Pakistan went to the United States and said, we, we want this weapons program and the financing that's coming through it to count toward you know, filling this gap. But before you knew that, like, what was it like as an analyst you know, watching this situation unfold? And what did people think about how this situation was going to resolve itself? Uh, it, you know, it was, um, I would say the analytical community was pretty much unanimous in their pessimistic view of whether Pakistan would pass this review from the IMF. So this was the seventh review of an IMF program that began in 2018. In order to receive some of the outstanding money, uh, the tranche that was to come from the IMF, about $1.1 billion, Pakistan needed to pass that review. So um, in the analytical community, and based on statements made by people who are directly involved in these talks or highly placed individuals, you know, the outlook was very grim. It looked like Pakistan was not going to pass that seventh review and, you know, down to the sort of went sort of down to the wire. And then all of a sudden it was announced that, you know, this program was going to be expiring and Pakistan would actually get an entirely different program, uh, a um, what's called a standby arrangement, which is a bit of a looser, more short term program. But uh, it would get, you know, actually a much a somewhat larger amount of funds. And this would uh, extend over uh, the um, expected election period into uh, the transition uh, of power to a, a new government um, and into April. So it was not only uh, larger in number, but also uh, longer in terms of the duration that it spanned. And so it came out of nowhere. Uh, so I was surprised and many others were surprised. But, you know, I think the uh, it didn't really look too much into how and why it happened because um, the specter of default had suddenly just uh, vanished in Pakistan. It dissipated, and I think uh, the the shock and the you know um, of that kind of just superseded uh, the investigation of how and why that happened. You know, I think since we know now that this uh, sales arms through the U.S. to Ukraine was how Pakistan closed the gap. Can you talk about how that? is common in Pakistani history or Pakistan's political output? Because I know the Pakistani military 
basically runs foreign policy of Pakistan more or less, sometimes more explicitly, sometimes more implicitly. But you see uh, military cooperation with other countries too on the part of Pakistan. Is this a way, a function of Pakistan's economy has developed that it's basically a contractor or outsourcer for military needs of other countries who solicit services? Yeah, I, I would say the military, the Pakistani military's role as a contractor for uh, more powerful, wealthy countries, including uh, the West, the United States, and Gulf Arab states, um, both directly and indirectly, helps uh, prop up uh, its political economy. And so um, we have the direct infusion of funds uh, to the Pakistani military, and then there's also the kind of uh, favors that are done for military-backed governments in Pakistan as it pertains to multilateral institutions in which these countries like the US and the UK and the Gulf Arab states have sig significant sway. So there are sort of direct ways and indirect ways in which uh, Pakistan's military, uh, when it serves the utility of these countries, can extract benefits that serve to uh, maintain the status quo, meaning their hold over power. And so, for example, during the war on terror, there was something called the coalition support funds. Uh, these were uh, ostensibly reimbursements for the Pakistani military, um, which provided a supply routes for U.S. forces into Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan is landlocked. Um, and so in order to send supplies there, most of them had to go through ground. And they used the Pakistani port of Karachi to send those, and, and I think maybe Port Qasim, so these two ports, uh, to send um, non-lethal supplies into Afghanistan. And Pakistan received uh, at times, you know, over a billion dollars a year to uh, reimburse it for um, for the provision of these services of the supply route. And uh, I think in total it was around fifteen billion dollars. And when we look at, you know, so the the, the those tr monetary transfers are important for the sheer value, but also because they helped plug the the financing gap, both in terms of uh, you know the domestic budget as well as um, Pakistan's need for foreign exchange. It needs dollars to import goods. Um, most of global trade is conducted through dollars. So when a country like Pakistan buys oil from Saudi Arabia or imports palm oil, a cooking, uh, cooking oil from Malaysia, they have to pay in dollars. So they need that. Um, but they don't generate it through their own exports. What they often, what they more often do is export their own services uh, to as a military contractor. That plays a substantial role in terms of plugging those gaps. So, you know, when we look at the, you know, the figures that are refer referenced in your report, the $900 million uh, that are said to represent uh, the, uh, the payments that the United States was going to make uh, in regards to the weapons that were provided to it by the Pakistanis, uh, I think this Ukraine war, which, you know, could go on indefinitely, uh, uh, Pakistan's provision of weapons to the U.S. for Ukraine and the provision of weapons to, to other Western partners in many ways is a continuation uh, or a resumption of that coalition support funds. That program was ended in 2018 when the Trump administration wanted to take a very tough approach towards Pakistan because of its support for the Afghan Taliban. And, um, and so the relations between the two countries have been very fraught, especially at a military to military and intelligence level. Now the Ukraine war has provided an opportunity 
for that relationship to be rekindled. And so we're seeing a replay of previous wars in which Pakistan and Pakistani, the Pakistani military has benefited uh, the West in serving as uh, some kind of vehicle for you know achieving its security objectives. And they're being compensated for the services that they're provided. So the past, in, in a large sense, is repeating itself. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Can you talk a little bit about the t- the timeline of events here as it relates to this weapons production and then the IMF loan? Because in our article, uh, we quote you as saying. Uh, Pakistani democracy may end up becoming a casualty of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I want you to unpack the relationship between you know, the IMF loan and Pakistani democracy and, the, and these uh, weapons sales. Yeah. And I think there's more of a direct tie between uh, what we may be seeing as the death of Pakistani democracy and Pakistan's, the Pakistani military siding with the West in this Ukraine war. And so, you know, this, this saga begins uh, in early 2022 when uh, Khan is, you know, uh, finds himself in Moscow with the announcement uh, on the day that Putin announces his invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. is incensed. The EU is incensed, and they want Pakistan to publicly condemn the war. And then Khan takes a, a tough posture, and and he uh, he says, "We're not your slaves." And um, and then at the same time, you know, as Khan um, sort of clings to this um, this non-aligned or supposedly aggressively non-aligned uh, posture. Uh, the military is signaling directly uh, in private as well as in, in public that uh, it's going to take a different approach. And so, for example, there was a, a public security forum in Islamabad held in, in April. And this is as Khan's uh, tenure is becoming increasingly tenuous and the military is kind of, you know, uh, beginning to su- is supporting a, a vote of no confidence against him or some elements in the military. They're still quite on the fence. And, um, you know, Khan articulates his government's uh, policy towards the Russia-Ukraine war and, and you know, affirms Pakistan's neutrality like many other countries in the global south, including India. And then the army chief addresses the same gathering just hours later, and he condemns the Russian invasion. Now, it's perfectly fine to condemn the Russian invasion. It's illegal, and uh, they're killing innocent civilians. They've invaded a sovereign country. But the army chief, who is an unelected official and has no constitutional capacity to articulate the government's policy in a unilateral form on his own, um, is, that, is doing, literally doing that before an audience where there's a lot of Westerners. 
And in fact, it was a Westerner, an American, sorry, a, a British uh, think tanker who was based in the U.S. who asked the question. And the army chief had, had given his response and condemned the Russian invasion there at, at a very public forum. And uh, and so the army is signaling at this point in this and other ways that it's going to take uh, the U.S. side in the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, Pakistan has not um, changed its diplomatic posture on the Ukraine war. It's still abstaining from uh, votes at the U.N. Uh, that condemned Russia. And we should note in response to our article, they actually have flatly denied that they're even making munitions uh, for Ukraine. Like they're still they're still maintaining that denial. I was going to ask about that too, Arif. It's very strange because not we have this documentary evidence from our story. We have European officials have actually praised Pakistan's role in providing military support. You can go online and see videos of Pakistani produce arms in Ukraine pretty readily at this point. But as Ryan said, they're openly just denying without any elaboration that any of this is happening. Can you make sense of this? Like how it seems like almost like you mentioned death of Pakistani democracy it seems like a evolution into really totalitarian sort of inf information environment? Well, you know, we've seen Pakistani officials do this in the past. Uh, during the war on terror, there were frequent U.S. drone attacks inside the country. The Pakistani military would condemn it in public, and then in private, they would tell the Americans, do as you please. And so um, some of these, uh, this behavior was revealed in the, um, in the WikiLeaks um, cables that were released. And so um, Pakistani elites, uh, in particular uh, in the military, but also in the civilian elite, are very capable of playing this, this, this double game and with a straight face making these um, bogus uh, denials when in fact there is both um, you know, documented evidence as well as secondary sources that clearly identified that its actual policy is something entirely different. So this is how a Pakistan's elite behaves, and, and the West is very much comfortable with this as long as it's serving its own interests. The reason I wanted to ask you about the relationship between the IMF loan and uh, Pakistani democracy is that it strikes me, and tell me if you think I'm wrong here, that in order for the military to launch its crackdown and to, even, to deepen its crackdown, it needed to postpone elections, and it needed to certainly make sure that the PTI Khan's party doesn't doesn't come back into power. And so it needed it also needed to stave off a financial crisis. If they go into an economic catastrophe, uh, that's going to require elections so that a new government can come in and, with a mandate, then strike a new deal uh, with the IMF. So quickly striking this deal then kind of puts off all of the reckoning. As you said, well, and you know, past April or May, which then gives them all of this time that they can use then to roll up all of the opposition and crack down. What's your what's your sense of that? Because you obviously. This is your job to watch this. I'm just kind of a tourist here. Yeah, it could go both ways. In fact, um, it, you know the the way uh, in terms of the duration of this new program, the way it's structured, um, it one gives the Pakistani military space to kind of do as it pleases vis-a-vis um, -vis Khan, because there are no real specific demands coming from the West vis-a-vis -vis this opposition leader who's in prison on bogus charges. So we have the U.S. making uh, demands of other countries, including Russia, to release opposition leaders and outspoken individuals who are under arrest uh, on these bogus on, on bogus cases, but they're not doing that uh, with respect to Pakistan. So it gives them space to dismantle Khan's party, but at the same time, um, you know, the way the, uh, the deal is structured, 
It also, you know, overlaps with the time period in which Pakistan's elections are supposed to be held. And then a, a, a new government ostensibly comes to power and there's a transition. So uh, it uh, it can be read both ways, uh, that it gives military space to kind of do what it wants, but also allows Pakistan to hold elections and, and stabilizes that time period. Um, and what we've seen is that from uh, the State Department and from other elements of the administration, they're really reluctant to really press Pakistan to hold elections according to the constitution. So we already have elections in two provinces that should have been held by the end of April. They've not been held. So uh, the the former, the, uh, the person who was then the chief justice of Pakistan Supreme Court said that because these elections are not being held, Pakistan's constitution, or at least parts of it, are effectively being held in abeyance, that they're being suspended. So we have a, a de facto military-ruled country at this point, and the U.S. is very reticent to exert pressure on the military. So this deal, um, this IMF deal, can notionally give the government space to conduct elections, but we're not really seeing uh, the U.S. back that up with action that is forcing uh, the, the military-backed caretaker government right now to hold elections within the uh, constitutionally mandated time period. So they have to be held by sometime in November. And the U.S. is not really being specific in terms of holding uh, the military-backed government to uh, those, that, those constitutional requirements. And one point, then I'll pass it to you, Maz. It, we don't want to also conflate uh, elections and democracy, because if you you can hold elections, you can have the kind of trappings of electoral democracy. But if in the meantime, you have completely eliminated a major party, it's not much of an election. Yeah, actually, and I just want to say that, you know, U.S. demands vis-a-vis uh, -vis elections are not really specific. Right. They're not asking the Pakistanis to hold, you know, elections that accord to, uh, that conform to, you know, Western standards. They really just want a box to be checked off. So they could care less whether, you know, Khan participates or not, whether the, the largest party in the country is being dismantled as a result of um, the, the forcible disappearances, the kidnapping of people. Thousands of people are currently under military detention. Attention. People are having, you know, sexual videotapes on them released by the military, and they're posted on on the internet. So we have all sorts of types of uh, ex ex um, extortion that's going on. You know, journalists have been kidnapped in Pakistan. One has been killed uh, abroad. So there's a lot going on, and the U.S. just wants, in the end, it just wants a box to be checked off that elections are held, and the quality of those elections are largely immaterial to what the current administration perceives as its interests. So Pakistan has had, has had periods in the past where it's directly ruled by the military, like someone in a military uniform to be the leader of the country and so forth. But the optics of that have become a bit negative. It has implications for receiving IMF loans and so forth. So it's not really possible today in Pakistan or not desirable for the military. And they have this caretaker set up, which, as you mentioned, the purpose of which is to foster elections or to create the circumstances for elections. And yet it seems like none of that is taking place in any foreseeable time frame. So given that the military effectively is in charge right now, one thing we know they want to do is use this time to crack down on their political enemies and dismantle Imran Khan's party. But what else do they want to do in this time? Do we think they may want to do or have a mandate to do uh, beyond the apparent of having elections? Is there, are there other policies they can push through at the moment that would not be possible if they had to deal with the messy uh, implications of civilian politics? 
Yeah, I mean, the military wants to uh, make some major economic decisions in terms of privatization. Uh, they want to privatize many uh, state assets, including the national airline. Uh, they want to pull in um, investment from Gulf Arab states. And so they've created, uh, actually the previous parliament had created a, a special investment coordination body that is essentially b dominated by the military. Its administrators are generals. And, um, and so they want to fast track investment from Gulf Arab states. And they want to use this transition period to do that because, uh, you know, it's difficult for a democratically elected government to do that. Uh, because those are always fraught political decisions that involve, um, you know, selling state-owned companies where there's a lot of public employees, including people from political parties. Um, so they want to enact these, ma make these moves while they effectively have uh, unquestioned power in the country, and they themselves would benefit. So the military is a major player in the extractives industry in Pakistan. Uh, it has stakes in, in the country's, you know, state-owned um, oil and gas companies. And then it wants to get into the minerals ext extraction business. And that's where, you know, the Saudis uh, may play a major role. And so it uh, wants to ensure that it continues to uh, get a, a big slice of the pie, of the economic pie in Pakistan. And then, you know, it, it, there are also indications that the military doesn't really want to hold elections. And so that's why they're kind of hoping perhaps that uh, maybe they can get some uh, substantial amount of money from the Gulf Arab states, and then they can just kiss the IMF goodbye, and they would largely be immune from from Western Western punitive action, and and so uh, there's a lot going on. But in the end, I think their main goal is to ensure that they continue with their economic dominance in the country, and then also their political dominance. I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about the decision by uh, the generals to side with the West in the Ukraine war may end up being the thing that that collapses the democracy. Fundamental irony there, that if your, your choice there is the Chinese and the Russians on one side and the West and the liberal democracies on the other side, that by choosing the liberal democracies, you sacrificed your own democracy. So what, what will that do for their relationship with uh, Russia and China? Like how are they responding to this news that this shift that everybody suspected was happening has in fact happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really ironic that, um, you know, this Russia-Ukraine war is being framed as a battle between autocracies and democracies. And one of the U.S.'s partner in this is a, uh, a de facto military dictatorship. And it is being given a free pass um, in terms of its own um, seizure of power because of its support for the West's fight for Ukrainian democracy and freedom. And so, you know, the, the, the freedoms of the Pakistanis are being sacrificed for the freedoms of Ukrainians. That's one way of looking at it. Now, in terms of Pakistan's relationship with Russia and China and its balancing act between the West and, and these, uh, these competing powers, you know, uh, the Russians have now gone on the record uh, about Pakistan's arms sales to the West. So Russia's ambassador to India had said that if these reports, uh, we're monitoring these reports, and if these reports are confirmed, they constitute anti-Russian actions and, and will respond. And so, you know, Russia has a considerable amount of, you know, it's not a, it's a superpower, but it's not an economic power, but it has the capacity to influence and, and 
it has a subversive capability uh, to influence uh, politics and even security in, in countries like Pakistan through supporting various political groups, agitational groups, and, and separatist and militant groups. And so it has a lot uh, it can use. It's also very close to India. It's a longtime ally of India. And so, you know, Russia can provide, you know, helpful intelligence to the Indians vis-a-vis the Pakistanis that India and Pakistan are arch rivals. And so Russia has a lot it can do. And then the Chinese, um, are Pakistan's longtime allies, but the Pakistanis have signaled uh, in quite an overt fashion, and I've written about this before uh, for the New York Times last year, early last year, um, that the Pakistanis want to kind of move away from China and rebalance towards the U.S. Uh, Now, Beijing uh, doesn't have really many close friends in the world, so it is constrained to some degree, but uh, there are indications that it is... um, it is uh, uncomfortable, if not angry, with Pakistan's attempts to rebalance towards the West. And, uh, you know, the Pakistani military is very obvious signaling of its uh, desire to kind of move away from China may complicate its uh, economic future because Pakistan most likely needs another IMF program. And that program will very much likely require that Pakistan renegotiate uh, its uh, external debt. So with countries like China, which which is its largest bilateral creditor. And and this issue of debt owed to China by developing countries is very much an issue that uh, the U.S. has been, has latched onto. And so it'll become caught in this, uh, you know, this great power rivalry between the U.S. and China once again. And I think it points towards the unfortunate consequences of a military-led foreign policy in Pakistan, because the military is always adept at making these sort of you know, playing these games. But in the end, they don't produce a country that is normal and stable and is able to have good relations with the world and balance outside powers so that its own people can prosper. It's always um, getting involved in these great cosmic, uh, these great uh, geopolitical conflicts. And what it needs at this moment is to escape them and not become enveloped in them. And, you know, as remote as it may be, if you could see a way out of this current quagmire or a more optimistic path for Pakistan in the near to medium term, uh, what could that be realistically? And what role, if any, could the U.S. play constructively to extricate Pakistan from this mess to which it contributed to in some small parts? You know, unfortunately, it looks like Pakistan is, is trapped in this zero-sum game between um those who dominate the army today, and Imran Khan, who's the country's most popular politician and remains behind bars. So I I see the pathway toward uh, a more sensible political settlement in the country as unlikely. But ultimately, stability in the country, real stability in the country, would require uh, free and fair elections in which its largest party, uh, its most popular party, Imran Khan's Pakistan Terhikansaf, is allowed to participate in, in in a free and fair and full fashion. And that it elects a uh, a government with the people's mandate, and that government makes decisions that it perceives are in the interest of its own people and coincide with the will of the masses. And that can serve as the basis for a healthy foreign policy and uh, to some degree sound domestic economic uh, policy making. You know, a lot of these tough decisions that have, to, that have to be made in terms of political reform and, and economic reform in Pakistan require a government that has the trust of the people. And that is done through elections. That's how it happens in most healthy societies. And elections, free and fair elections, are ultimately part of the pathway toward Pakistan um, you know, finding some sort of stability in the future. 
Arif, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be on. Thank you. That was Arif Rafiq, a political risk analyst on Pakistan and non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. And that's it for Deconstructed today. Ryan, it was great. Another crossover. Yeah, we should do this more often. Again, sometime soon, perhaps. Thanks, Maz. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. Murtaza Hussein is the co-host of Intercepted. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback. Email us at podcast at theintercept.com or ryan.grim at theintercept.com and put deconstructed in the subject line. Otherwise, we might miss your message. We wouldn't want to do that. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon.